0: This is the third sermon in our series, uh, Properly Formed, which you can read about on page 75 of the West Side Journal. We're talking about spiritual practice uh, during this series, how we can move our faith into practice, how we can be more than about big ideas, but about ways of living and things that we do, how God's ways can become our ways. So that's the idea of practice, which we talked about last week. And I'm choosing to do my part of this series by talking about three present, what I'm calling diseases, things that are probably troubling our spiritual lives to some degree, which I have experienced in my own soul and life, and the ways that we can overcome these through practice and orientation of attitude. Last week, I talked about a CD I understood variously, it has many shades of meaning, but understood sometimes as spiritual despondency, and the practice there is joyful hope, perseverance. Today I'm going to talk about outrage and anger, and I'm going to say that surprisingly, beauty is the way that we overcome these things, this sense of anger in ourselves, the practices of beauty, in recognizing beauty, treasuring it, making things beautiful. And then next week I'm going to talk about forgetfulness, and I'm going to talk about the practice of storytelling, which has become very important to me over these past few years. Uh, Even after I left Westside, I sort of immersed myself in storied ideas, so I'm going to talk about that next week. So here's my little story to start today. A few years ago, I expressed an opinion on Facebook in reaction to some of what my Facebook friends were talking about, and the issue will remain unnamed. Voldemort, he, sh- he who shall be unnamed. Uh, and so I expressed my opinion. I don't, don't normally do much on Facebook, uh, but I reacted. And you might be, guess, might be guessing already where the story is going. <laughs> Pandemonium erupted because Facebook's algorithms loves that stuff and bumps it to the top, right? And my oldest daughter, who's quite savvy in this stuff, both my daughters work in... Tech fields and social media and advertising and so on. My oldest daughter said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving my opinion to all my friends who've expressed theirs. Let me put it this way if you watch hockey for the fights, you would have loved this. (laughs) It, It was just great. And my wife was mortified. And my own family came after me, my siblings. My cousins. Um, Isn't kindness related to to the word kin? I think it is. Well, it didn't exist in this case. They were outraged at me. (laughs) How can you say this? And we went back and forth, and then after a few days, I shut down the conversation, and then after a few days after that or a few weeks, I actually backed right out of Facebook. Do you know that Homer Simpson meme where he backs into the hedge. <laughs> you all know that. That's what I did. That's my little story. So I've thought about my little Facebook moment <laughs> since then, and it confirms really what social observers are saying, that, that anger seems to be on the upswing, and we're cultivating it, actually, in our, in our public spaces, our online spaces, for sure. And it's infecting our... Our common life, our politics, our home life, our identities, our opinions are all being shaped by grievance, outrage, anger. You know, anger is this recognition that something is wrong, and there are things that are wrong. But anger is often imprecise, isn't it? We can't always locate the proper source of what is wrong. We often get mad at the wrong things in the wrong way. I think that's what I've experienced. Maybe we should have all been angry in that Facebook spat, not at the thing we were angry at, but at the way we were doing it and the way we were being processed into anger and reaction. Maybe the problem was actually deeper than what we knew, deeper than what we could see in that moment. Now, we're not good at self-reflection, are we? We're just not. And since I am plainly not the problem, the problem must be you, <laughs> right? And so the pointing ah. finger. But how seldom anger makes things better? And how often anger defeats us? So consider these lines of thought then. Anger is, is a normal, maybe even often a proper reaction to what is wrong to the sense that things are wrong. You know, we'd be completely deficient as moral persons if we did not get angry at injustice or abuse or lies, right? Anger then lies in our moral sense. And it's true to say that even with all the redrawing of morality in our time, moral lines are being redrawn all over the place, the one thing we're not giving up on is the sense of justice and fairness. Because it's so much part of us, right? But having said that, discerning the actual wrong is often hard to do. So we sense something is wrong, but what is wrong? (laughs) And often the wrong lies deeper than, than what we can see or even that we're conscious of. The wrong might lay in a system or in a pattern of thought. AND THE WRONG MIGHT ACTUALLY BE IN OURSELVES. SO WE GET ANGRY, RIGHTFULLY SO, BECAUSE WE SENSE SOMETHING'S WRONG. BUT WHAT SHOULD WE BE ANGRY AT? AND IT'S HARD FOR US TO BE ANGRY IN A HELPFUL WAY. THAT'S THE THIRD LINE OF THOUGHT THERE. WE TEND TO SIN IN OUR ANGER. OUR ANGER EXPLODES, RIGHT? AND IT BECOMES HURTFUL, IT BECOMES DESTRUCTIVE. And we know that it's possible to channel anger into something positive. We see examples of that. It's possible to do anger righteously, but we just have a poor batting average in this regard. And lastly there, I say that anger cannot be our permanent state. That's simply the case. We cannot afford to get stuck in it. My sisters uh, say, and I was the oldest, uh, my two younger sisters say that I was a complete grump in my teen years. In around 14, 15, 16, not nice to live with. I, I, I don't remember any of that, actually. <laughs> uh, and mom would tell them, uh, Donna or Diane, go wake up Bob. He's sleeping in too late Saturday morning. You know, it's probably 11 o'clock now. <laughs> go wake him up. And uh, they would defer and they would beg, it o- beg off <laughs> waking me up because they said I would yell at them or throw something at them, you know. And so that was me at times. And uh, the key, though, is not to get stuck in that, not to be permanently angry. Some of us get stuck in our anger. We forget what it was that precipitated our anger. We're just now venting. We're just casting our anger at whatever comes our way. So Jesus got angry. We know that. Several times in the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus was angry. Mark chapter 3 is one instance where Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and his opponents, the people that are very suspicious of him, are watching him closely. And he meets a man with a shriveled hand, which probably suggested that man was ashamed of his deformity, probably hid it, and, uh, and they're watching him very closely. Would he heal again on the Sabbath? Which, to them, was breaking God's law of doing no work, right? And so they were angry at Jesus because he was contradicting the traditions, their ways, their chosen ways. Angry enough, in fact, to kill him. And Jesus himself gets angry in that, in that scene in Mark 3. He's angry at their twisted state of thinking. He's angry at, that they can call something so beautiful and, and good wrong and sinful. He's angry at their stubborn hearts. I would say that Jesus properly locates what is wrong. <laughs> it's, in their, it's in their pride that's trapped them. It's in their blindness that has, that has disoriented them. So I would say that Jesus properly and clearly sees what we ought to be mad at. And you know, that for us takes a while often. It takes, takes some time, it often requires assistance and probably humility to see properly at what we ought to be mad at. But here's what happens in this story. Jesus then channels his anger in a positive and helpful way. He heals the man. He he mends, he heals. He doesn't tear or disrupt or break. His energies go into that which heals the world. The scriptures counsel us then In your anger, do not sin. That's a famous line from Ephesians 4, which is an interesting way to say it, right? In your anger, do not sin. But few of us do that well. Perhaps at this moment, we're realizing that maybe our anger needs rehabilitation of some kind, that there is a more beautiful way to address what is wrong in the world than the expression of sinful anger. I'm not going to do much more in terms of the anatomy of anger right now. There's so much to say. But I know that you just finished a series on Jonah, which is one of my favorite texts to consider, to contemplate, and to teach, actually. I've done it several times in in my pastoral life. And I've always been haunted at that question at the end of Jonah when God questions Jonah and he says, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Do you remember that? David taught that series here. And Jonah thought that he did have a right, didn't he? He he was probably angry at God because God was being kind to the people he didn't like. (laughs) And he might have also been angry at how things had turned out. You know, he'd preached that Nineveh would be overturned, and it was, but just not in the way that he thought it would. So he was probably humiliated. The truth was that his anger was selfish, misplaced. Perhaps we could say then that part of our spiritual formation, our spiritual journey, is the reformation of our anger. We're going to recognize that things are wrong in the world, but how does that get channeled in the right ways, at the right things? And in the case of Jonah, I think what you see there is he's being called to yield his anger To the bigger reality which is surely here the biggest reality and that is the beautiful and wondrous grace of love and this is what I want to point out today that the antidote to anger is the recognition of beauty and the pursuit of it because when beauty shows up anger is entirely out of place so the story I want to tell today is how beauty can intercept anger and how beauty can save us when anger threatens to undo us. It's the story of David and Abigail and Nabal out of 1 Samuel 25, one of my favorite stories. The story really is David is not yet established as king in Jerusalem. That's his future, that's his promise. But he's living in that space before when he has the promise but not yet the reality. It's our space too. Often there are certain promises that are fulfilled in small ways, but the ultimate promise has not yet been fulfilled in our life. We live in the gap between what we wait for and what we now have. So this is a story that I think should matter to us. Uh, David and his company live in the desert south of Jerusalem, and that can be dangerous country. Crime is high, bandits are stealing, raiders are raiding, Right, all that. And David and his company are actually providing some kind of ordered protection there. I mean, while he waits to be king, he's acting like a king. He's establishing peace and order, especially for the shepherds and the flocks that exist in that region. Now, there's this man there named Nabal who benefits from David's protection. Uh, Nabal actually means fool. So this is how the story is going to function. It's not subtle at all. Okay, we have fool, we have David. And we have beautiful Abigail. This is the only thing that Nabal probably has done right in his life. He married beautiful Abigail. If I was sitting with Susan right now, listening to this sermon, my my wife Susan, she'd probably elbow me right now and say, you ought to be grateful, bud, just like that. That's what she'd do. She calls me bud. So this is what it says. She was intelligent, and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was sorely and mean in his dealings. For some reason, beautiful Abigail, beautiful inside and out, ends up with old grumpy pants, Nabal. I, that happened, and it still happens. <laughs> so here's the story. It came time for shearing the sheep and the feast that followed, and David sent some of his men over to Nabal, asking the old man to share some of his bounty. Especially since they had not taken anything from Nabal's flocks or herds. You know, so share with us, Nabal, we've we've done we've done you good. Maybe a little lamb with some mint sauce, a little wine to wash it down. Share with us your bounty. And Nabal listens to the request and true to form replies: Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where, okay? So that's Nabal, bad-tempered, angry, and probably feeling justified in his anger. And now David's men return back to David and report what Nabal has just said. They've been, obviously, they've been insulted. They've been dissed, right? Disregarded, dismissed, whatever other diss happens there. And their contribution to Nabal and his prosperity has been deliberately forgotten. And with that exchange, you know, going to make the request, hearing his response, and then coming back to report it to David, something now begins to happen like a spreading infection. The anger in Nabal... Now spreads to David. And David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. Yikes. And so they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David. So here we go. The infection of anger from Nabal has now spread to David and his men. And now we see Abigail spring into action. Beautiful, smart, wise Abigail. Nabal never deserved her. And when she hears what has just transpired, how Nabal had just insulted David in what was really a fair and just request, she knows what's entirely possible. And she knows that without action, this is not going to end well for anyone. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sias, that's a lot, of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys, and then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. So in the face of such danger, action was required, because sometimes actions are required, Right? and Abigail acts. David is already on the warpath by now in that kind of self-pity that rage is known for. There's kind of this selfish, you know, licking of the wounds and feeling sorry for oneself. We've all experienced this. And anger in that sense enters in kind of, into a kind of unreasonable reason. It has its own inner dialogue. But it's not connected to anything. (laughs) I would call it temporary insanity, right? We know what this is. So let's pause and think for a bit. When we feel that something is wrong, especially if we feel mistreated, it's easy to fall into this kind of blindness where we lose a sense of proportion, right? And that's the moment when we can do and say reckless things. We call it blind rage, right? When we're in a state where we can't see life very well. We don't see our present properly, and then we somehow lose connection with our future. Blind rage. It's been useless, said David. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. And this is where uh, (laughs) it's appropriate to question. When we say such things, doing good is useless, David, right? David, in his blind rage, just swears revenge. That's all he's thinking about right now. And just as David is saying this, along the trail comes Abigail riding her donkey with with her servants, and the donkeys loaded with foods of all kinds, all that they'd asked for, the feast that they wanted. But what she wants is to make sure that David and Nabal are kept from their prideful anger and from the immense harm about to fall on all. So she's descending into a ravine, and David and his men are entering the ravine on the far side on the other end, and they meet on the road. And Abigail gets off her donkey, and begins to plead with David. Let me speak to you, she says. How often rage can't be spoken to, right? But here's how this story works, I think. Um, This is the fine art of storytelling. So again, we have David, the future king, the man with a promise and a future. And we have Nabal, the old fool who's just angry at the world. And here we have beautiful Abigail. We're meant to see beauty as part of this story. It's not hard to figure out the reason why David listens. Abigail is a striking vision. I mean, that's what we, she's a beautiful woman bringing donkeys loaded with good food. I mean, that will get to every man's heart, right? She's good looking with good cooking. I mean, that will do it. So if you're understanding how the story works, okay, David with a future, Nabal the fool, and beauty now comes along. And when beauty speaks, it's time to listen. And David listens. And Abigail says, please pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. So here's the reasoning that she does. This is the problem, right? We get seized by an insult or trapped by some kind of injury and we're paying attention to the wrong rather than who we are and where we're going. Now, let's not be naive here. When we enter those moments, when injury comes, we're inevitably going to pay attention to it. Of course, we will. But... (laughs) Can we be intercepted by reason? What kind of reason will we be listening to? And she speaks about David's future. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for you. David would be king one day. And Abigail reasons with him that this act of revenge against grumpy old Nabal would only wound his conscience and stain his soul. It's not worth it. Anger expressed sinfully only brings regret. We all know this. It doesn't fit the wonderful future that God has for you, David. So David is stopped right in the middle of on the way to expressing his rage. And Abigail becomes David's preacher, if you want to put it that way, reasoning with him, not to dwell on the fool, to think beyond this moment. So she's reasoning with him, but something else is in play, and I've already talked about it. Beauty, beauty itself Appears on the road before David. And it's not just Abigail's beautiful appearance, it's her beautiful intelligence. We call that wisdom. A rarer beauty, I think. Wisdom. Proportion. Holding all things together. The wrong, yes, but also the future. (laughs) Wisdom holds it all together, and sees it all in proportion. Who do you know that's wise? And wouldn't you call them beautiful? You know, David was once described as beautiful. That's part of the story. When we first meet David in 1 Samuel 16, the moment when he is called in from the fields and, and Samuel anoints him as the future king of Israel, we are told there that he glowed with health, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Actually, one translation says of David that he was handsome and (laughs) good-looking. That's got it going on, right? If you're handsome and good-looking. So David once was that, but right now he's just plain ugly, right? He's disintegrating into pettiness. He's losing his way. But in that ugly state, just now, graciously, David is intercepted by beauty. What has just now come to stand in his way and to call him back to another way is the recognition in his own heart of what is better than revenge, beauty itself. All that Abigail speaks is so beautiful, so full of wisdom, but full of the aroma of God, right? And I can imagine that when Abigail is speaking and In the story, if you read it, 1 Samuel 25, you'll see how much time it's taken for her words. As she speaks, it must have been something like an operation on David's soul, on his heart. Beauty was working its magic, calling him to another way. How will David respond? So I read from the Message Bible here. David said, blessed be God, he sent you to meet me. And blessed be your good sense, your wisdom. Bless you for taking charge of looking out for me, your actions. A close call. If you had not come as quickly as you did, stopping me in my tracks, by morning there would have been nothing left of Nabal. You know, as we follow the story of David forward, we realize that he is no perfect specimen. We know that about King David. He is capable of great sin. But If there's any quality of David, and it happens several times in his life, it's the quality of being able to respond in the way that he responds here. He's able to be responsive to God. He's able, in those moments of clarity, to see (laughs) the better way. Of being able to recognize the more beautiful way and being able to respond when God was calling him to change. David is able to do that. He's enabled. He's enabled by God to do that. So David turns back and Abigail returns to her home. And later, when David hears that Abigail has become a widow, he marries her. That's our happy ending. It's a little more complex than that, but I won't get into the details. So how has beauty intercepted you? Was there a person attached to that? Let me gather up in these last few moments, and I wish I could talk at length about these things, but we only have time to sort of signal them. Practices, three practices I want to give, three simple practices for living into the way of beauty. And I want to say, I want to talk about recognizing and treasuring beauty, making beautiful, and then perfecting goodness with beauty. So those three things, and I'll be brief. First, we have to learn to recognize and treasure beauty. You know, it's, it's a mystery what beauty is and how to define it. It's hard to quantify, Right? I know the Greeks, uh, the ancient Greek philosophers, were enamored with beauty, and they tried to explain it. I've read books on beauty. (laughs) How do you define what beauty is? You know, we recognize it when we encounter it, and it comes in so many forms, right? Beautiful music. What's the quality of beautiful music? I, I don't know. Beautiful spaces. A beautiful example of moral courage. That's that's one that strikes me. Beautiful craftsmanship, skill. Beautiful, a beautiful soul. All of these things are really hard to quantify. Also unique and different, really. All we can really say is that beauty attracts us. It calls us to itself. And we want to be near beauty. We want to be with beauty. We want to inhabit beauty. I wonder if in our time, then, beauty tends to get replaced by functionality. This is our sort of habit right now, by some kind of cost analysis. And cost does matter, make no mistake, but it's not everything. You know, you might remember that story in the Gospels where a woman breaks a very expensive jar of perfume on Jesus' head. Um, Jesus said this story would be told in her memory, so I'm telling it again this morning. And she did this in the week before his death. And some of the company there that experienced this or witnessed it were scandalized. They're outraged. They said, what a waste of money, right? They were thinking cost, and Jesus said, what? She's done a beautiful thing. They recognized cost, he recognized beauty. David said, one thing I asked from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That word gaze there suggests contemplation, to pay attention for a long time. And therefore, I think beauty often has to be discerned, it has to be contemplated. Because it's not always understood at first. My friend Charles Neekirken says, we don't really know someone until they've left us. You know, it's at their funeral we say, oh my goodness, to sum up their life, they were a beautiful soul. Or they were grumpy pants. (laughs) Right? We don't know someone until they're gone. It takes contemplation to know beauty. You know, when beauty appears to David on the road in the form of Abigail, there's some time as he waits and listens and probably contemplates her beautiful words. And we can say at the very least that David recognizes beauty and it saves him. Tim Keller said, religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. And that is an absolutely different approach to life. It asks different questions, and it arrives at different answers. So the first practice is simply to recognize and treasure beauty. Make it central to the ways you live as a Christian. Truth, yes. Goodness, yes. Beauty as an anchoring point. Joan Chittister is a wonderful writer on spiritual themes. She mentions an ancient anonymous poet. Who wrote these words when you only have two pennies left in the world buy a loaf of bread with one and a lily with the other okay the second practice is to make beautiful and here's how i want to suggest we can think about it we long to inhabit what is beautiful don't we to be as close to beauty as we can be and that is deeply i think within our human nature the attraction and the desire for the beautiful. So maybe we can make beauty part of our work, making beautiful, right? Because making beautiful certainly is God's work. Ecclesiastes famously said, he makes all things beautiful in his time. That's that's what God does and what he is doing, in fact. That's the long arc of history, if we can see where all this is going. Right now what do you see? You just see a lot of sawdust and construction going on. That's all you see right now. But the end product will be stunningly beautiful. So God does not simply work, but he works toward beauty and for beauty. In Ephesians 2 then, this famous text where Paul writes that we are we we ourselves are God's work. He notes that it's that God is doing a particular kind of work. He says we are God's handiwork and the word there is poema, from which we get the word poem we are god's handiwork or his beautiful work or his artistic work created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us if you were thinking about poetry and i've written a few pieces in my life i'm not a poet but there's just sometimes you just feel you need to say something poetically and i know that when i enter into that space i'm laboring over my words I'm reforming them and working them. There's a labor to it, but the goal is to make something expressively beautiful, right? to say the truth in a beautiful way. So we could say we are God's beautiful work, God's works of art, because God doesn't just work. He works for beauty's sake. And I think then that that reflects on our work. To be a reflection of how God works is to make things beautiful. I came across this story just this week on the news, and it just moved me. I, was, I, I, this was, I read this on, I, I saw the, a little video piece actually on this on Friday. This is Shamayim Harris, also known as Mama Shu, who is transforming her Detroit neighborhood one little piece at a time. She lives in a really blighted area in Detroit. Um, there, are, there are swaths of Detroit where it's just, it's, it's just fallen apart, right? The car industry left, people left, then things fell apart, and then crime exploded. And so the story of Mama Shu is that she actually lost two of her sons in Detroit. And she said her grief or her anger was unbearable, she said. And then she said, but she, the morning after one of her sons died, she got up the morning and she said she dreamed of living in a more beautiful place. So she started to fix things up as best she could. And she, st- <laughs> she asked about the price of a house. And apparently, in that neighborhood, I don't know if it's still true, but you could get a house for $5,000. Imagine that. But they're fixer uppers. <laughs> um, she somehow scraped and saved and got people working together and she started buying up properties and houses. Her group now owns 45 houses and pieces of property over several blocks they've actually created a house called the homework house for the kids she's making her place beautiful her challenge she said was her immense grief the anger of her loss but her healing was to make beautiful that's so inspiring sometimes we're called to make beautiful sometimes we're given a mess. Someone else did not make beautiful, (laughs) which means then our job is to clean things up to make them beautiful again. So when you're going about your work this week, don't think in terms of mere function. Ask the questions, how can I do this with more beauty and grace and joy and love? How can I show the character and work of God in my own work? That's the practice. And finally, We perfect goodness with beauty. I've been thinking recently about how certain words can carry feelings in them for us. We know the meaning of words. We have our Christian vocabulary, God and Bible and salvation and heaven, and we have our vocabulary. You know what's a more interesting question? How do you feel about each of these words? (laughs) How do you feel about the word goodness? I I knew someone actually who said that they had disconnected from the word love because when they were growing up, their mother would say, I love you, and then there was always some kind of requirement or abusive behavior that would follow, and the word love got ruined for him. How do we feel about the word good? How does it strike you? How does it feel to you? I wonder if it's been kind of squished into a caricature of of correctness in our time. Like, like, Like my experience in grade one with the principal okay? In grade one, I kept getting in trouble. I kept breaking the grade one rules. I wasn't supposed to go there, and I went there, whatever happened. And I, I got sent to the principal's office, which was an absolutely traumatic thing for my six-year-old self. And there I was made to conform to correct behavior, the rules, Bobby, right? And there was the principal, the enforcer of correctness. And I suppose he was good in one sense, because he He knew the rules, but I saw nothing charming in that guy. (laughs) Goodness and loveliness were were not together in him. So what does Jesus mean when he calls himself the good shepherd in John 10? Does he mean that he wants to keep his sheep on the straight and narrow? I believe in morality, but is morality all there is to goodness, correctness, And here's where we need to see how goodness is perfected by beauty. The Greek word actually is kalos. There, I am the good, the beautiful. Kalos in the Greek mind was was goodness in all its ways that we could understand it, purity, but adds a strong sense of beauty in the idea of kalos. So we could say... When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is saying, I am the beautiful shepherd who lays down his life for us. And that is where goodness stuns us, doesn't it? It almost becomes incomprehensible because it calls to us with its beauty. It's not merely being correct. And this is what we are to learn, I think, and to practice because All of our good morality, all of our good behavior and good opinions, and the good agendas that we take on, all of that kind of goodness is somehow only partially good. It only carries a veneer of goodness, and it isn't the real thing if it's not also beautiful. Goodness that's only correct is not good enough. Paul writes, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let's pray. And so we say, Lord, this morning, good and beautiful God. We need to gaze on your beauty. As we thought about David this morning, how beauty saved him from his own ugliness. How he was intercepted by beauty on that day. Perhaps today, for some of us, we've been intercepted. Some of us are being tempted to do the ugly thing. And you're calling us back to, to beauty, to somehow reflect the beauty of our Good Shepherd. So, Lord, our prayer today is help us to see beauty, help us to treasure it, and help us to see how beauty is our life's work. And we ask that you'd help us contemplate the beauty of the Lord in this time we live in, when so many are angry, and we ourselves are tempted to be angry. Help us to recognize with clarity what is wrong, yes, but help us to also live in hope, when all shall be made lovely again. We pray these things in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, and for our, home, for our own wholeness, we pray. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. You know, I really appreciated you receiving me back so kindly. It's wonderful to be with you. Next Sunday, I'm going to be talking about the problem of forgetfulness and how we need to tell our stories. And dads, you can begin today. Tell your stories because your kids want to hear the stories you've told many times. (laughs) So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a wonderful day. God bless.